Now, the Bible says if you want to know what a day in the life of Jesus was like, you just, if you followed him around for a day, he went around everywhere doing good and healing people that were under the oppression of Satan. That's what it says. It doesn't say just doing good things like a good Boy Scout, right? It says he went about everywhere doing good. What kind of good? He delivered people from the harsh treatment of Satan. That's what oppression means, harsh treatment. Because Satan treats you harshly, and nobody was treated more harshly than the man we're going to look at today as we continue in our series on the people Jesus touched. Because Jesus touched people. That's what he was all about. He changed the lives of people. How many of you can say he sure changed mine? Yep. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's no way I can do a series on the people Jesus touched without talking about the demon-possessed man of Gadara the demon-possessed man of Gadara. Um, So let's read Mark 5, starting at verse 1, and let's, let's just zip right through this story and listen to what Jesus did for this man. They, that is Jesus and the disciples, went to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs And met him. He lived among the tombs. No one could constrain him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had pulled the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. Nobody could subdue him, always, night and day. What a terrible life. Look at what the devil did to him. Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. Verse 6, but when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran up and kneeled before him and cried out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This was not the man talking. For Jesus said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what's your name? The spirit answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him repeatedly not to send them away out of the country. So there are certain areas the devil likes and wants to dwell in. We need to pay attention here. This is very illuminating, okay? Verse 11, now there was a great herd of swine feeding near the mountains, and all the demons pleaded with him, asking, send us to the swine so that we may enter them, and at once Jesus gave them leave. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, ran wildly down a steep hill into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. We stop there. You talk about high drama. You talk about creepy. You talk about eerie. You talk about I plead the blood kind of stuff. I'm not Catholic, but sometimes, right? You just want to be sure. So we're going to see that our Lord Jesus had authority over the best hell could send. Amen? All right, 
Lord, thank you for your word today. We pray you will bless it. And Lord, help us to understand the great authority and power you have over all the works of darkness and that there is nothing too hard for you, no case too difficult for you. No problem, no bondage too great for you to break it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, buckle your seatbelt. This is going to be a story. Yeah. Now, if you'll just think about it for a minute, this is the fifth week we've been on the people Jesus touched. But I want you to notice that the first four were all physical needs. They were physical afflictions. The man with a withered hand, Jesus healed his hand. The woman with the issue of blood, Jesus healed her, gave her a brand new life. Then there was blind Bartimaeus who could not see and Jesus gave him his sight. And then there were the 10 lepers who were terminal because they had leprosy and Jesus healed their leprosy. But this one here is different because this one is not outside, this one is inside. This is not an outer struggle or an outer affliction. This is an inner affliction, an inner bondage, an inner torment uh, that this poor man is going through. And I got to tell you, the first part of today's message is not easy to hear and it's not easy for me to preach because we've got to look at the work of the devil so that we can see just exactly what the devil is all about and the total contrast between who the devil gets a hold of and who Jesus gets a hold of. All right? Now, the, 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 the story that we just read, I believe, introduces us to probably the top five cases of demon possession in the history of the world. I've never read of a worse one. We note that the, Jesus asked the demons their name. You've got a little conversation going on with Jesus and these devils. He's not struggling with them, but he, they are in subjection to him. They, are, they have caused this man to bow before the Lord. And the, the possession is so great that Jesus says, I want to know your name. And they replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And the word legion is used to describe uh, the, a, a, a part of the Roman army or a division of the Roman army. And, and a, and a, a um, legion was about 6,000 infantry with additional cavalry. So he's literally telling us that up to 6,000 spirits had gained entrance into this man's life. We can't even comprehend it. One evil spirit can wreak havoc. We can't comprehend what this man was experiencing that somehow 6,000 spirits from hell had gained entrance into his life. One commentator writes, nothing more terrible, vivid, penetrating, and real was ever conceived by the creative mind of man than the picture drawn of this man's condition. Stephen King could not have come up with this. This is the worst of the worst. And folks, I want you to see what we're going to notice, that the devil is not an idea or a myth or a fable or some symbol of evil. But Jesus is dealing with this thing like he's dealing with a personality because he is dealing with a personality. I want us to look at the tragic effects of the devil and his work on this man's life. Because as we look at what the devil did to this man, 
we got to know this is what he does today. This, this is a picture of the devil. This man, this man is, is the poster child for the devil's handiwork. First, this man had a fascination with death. He's drawn to and lives in the rock-carved tombs that overhang the ocean. He's literally living in tombs. Tombs like these in those days consisted of a small chamber in the front and a door leading from there into the tomb. And the tomb was generally about six by six. And they would lay the body in that six by six area. And this was where this man, full of the devil, made his home. When you see people gravitating towards death, fascinated with death, I always wonder who and what is influencing their life because this man being demon-possessed was fascinated with death and the devil is the author of death. Second, he possessed really freaky superhuman strength. Think about it. The, the authorities of the town of Gadara had tried chaining him and shackling him. These were iron chains. The, these were serious chains. Shackled him here and by his feet to bind him, to stop him from his wandering. Like a wild animal, he, he was chained up, but he simply snapped those chains like toothpicks, snapped them without breaking bones. Third, Luke's gospel adds that he wore no clothes. Not necessarily that he was naked, that's not what it's saying, but that he had no outer garment to dignify himself. And so here's what it says to me. His self-respect and his natural modesty had been stripped away. Being full of the devil. His natural modesty had been stripped away. There is a modesty that, that is planted in all of us from God. And the devil wants to take that modesty away. And the devil took that modesty away from this man. He's lost his self-esteem, his self-respect, his self-honor. Fourth, he was self-destructive. We're told that he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones, crying out, howling, cutting himself with stones. Under Satan's torment, he cut himself with splinters of rock, and we would call that today a self-harming cutter because that's what so many teenagers are getting into these days, cutting themselves. The, the stress is so great in their lives, but you've got to wonder about another source. If you're cutting yourself, harming yourself, uh, mangling yourself, deforming yourself, scarring yourself, something else may be behind that. I'm just reading the Bible. Fifth, he says, he cried out in the night. One commentator writes, what the people of Gadara may have been subjected to once the sun had set. Quote, he made the night hideous with his wild shrieks and he fled swift as the wind from place to place among the lonely hills like a wandering ghost. The, the people of Gadara, when they went to tuck their kids in at night, they didn't have windows like us. They, they didn't have soundproofing walls like us. And this man would come out at night and he would shriek. The Bible says so. He would shriek. Shriek how? Shriek in torment. Shriek in pain. Shriek as the devil did this to him. And the, the, the Bible tells us in Luke's account that, 
that the whole town was in fear of him so that, quote, none could pass by that way, end quote, for fear of being attacked by him. This poor man, my heart goes out to him as I was studying this this week. I thought, how horrible, this poor man. He was was not at war with himself. He was at war with other beings that had somehow gained entrance into his house of life. And you got to go, how did this happen? Well, generally, you open a door. And we do know that in his time, because of what the book of Acts tells us about the, the prevalence of witchcraft and the occult and occult activity in the first century, it could very well be that he had dabbled with the occult, that he had gotten involved in some kind of witchcraft. Because when they got saved in the book of Acts, the Bible says when revival broke out in Samaria, they got all of their witchcraft books, all of their magic books, and came and made a great bonfire and burned them and denounced them and renounced them and repented of them. So we know that witchcraft was prominent. There were sorcerers, there were witches, and maybe this man had opened the door through the occult. And once you open a door, it's so much harder to shut it. Now, the context of the story actually begins in chapter 4, and the context matters. There's three golden rules of interpretation. I want you to say them with me. Context, context, context. What came before it, what goes after it. When you're studying your Bible, uh, you don't want to make a doctrine out of one verse. You want to see what came before it. What came before it is Jesus says to the disciples, hey, hop in the boat. Let's go over to the other side. The other side being Gadara. So I want you to notice that this man was on Jesus' mind when nobody else knew about it. Jesus was willing to cross a sea in order to reach one tormented soul. Jesus said, hop in the boat, we're going across the other side. Now, they didn't know what they were in for, but Jesus did because he was God. In the beginning, it was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's God the Son. He knew the end from the beginning. He knew what awaited the others on the other side. He knew about this demon-possessed man and the torment of his soul, and he was making a special trip just to reach him. And he's looking for you and you. If you're in trouble, he knows about it, and he'll cross land and sea to get to you and deliver you and answer you and help you. Yes, he will. And so you know the story. They're crossing the sea, and all of a sudden, a great windstorm kicked up, and all of a sudden, they're in a terrible storm. Now, we also know Jesus knew the storm was coming, but there's something he wanted to teach the disciples, so he allowed the storm. Sometimes the Lord will allow a storm if there's something he really wants to teach us. He will allow a storm. Don't tell me he doesn't allow a storm. If you tell me he doesn't allow the storms in your life, then you're telling me he's not in charge. And if he's not in charge, then he's not God. He'll allow some storms in our life. If there's something he wants to teach us some way that he wants to deepen our faith and strengthen it and give it greater breadth, height, width, and depth. And so he gets them into this boat. And when they're about halfway across, here comes this storm, and the waves are beating up into the boat. And, and you know the story. They, they, Jesus is asleep. <laughs> Have you ever felt like Jesus was asleep in your storm? You ever felt like he didn't even know about it? Like, where are you, Lord? I'm in the middle of a storm. Are you going to let me perish here? Where are you? And they, they woke him up. And I love this. Jesus stood up in the boat. And here's this howling wind, and here's these giant waves. The boat is about to go under, and Jesus just talks to the wind. And he says, stop blowing. 
crickets. And then he looks at the waves and he says, stop rolling. And the waves that had been beating into this boat suddenly stopped and the sea was placid calm. And the disciples asked the million dollar question. It was the whole reason he allowed the storm. They said, they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Great question. That's the million dollar question. Answer, he's God. That's, that's, the, that's the answer. And only the God that made the weather can control the weather and stop the weather and tell the weather what to do. And he told the wind with a word. He stopped the blowing wind and with a word he stopped the rolling waves with a word. Now here's the disciples. They just got a PhD in faith. Because they're looking at this going, wow, we're not following a a good guy that just kind of multiplies bread and walks on the water sometimes and does cool things. No, no, nature obeys him. They were going to need that because on the heels of this event, chapter five opens with their arrival to the shores of Gadara and immediately this demon possessed man is seen charging out of the tombs towards Jesus and it's a good thing the disciples had just seen him control the wind and the waves because now they got another storm coming right at them in the form of this man and he is spooky. Now let's break down what happens when the man reaches Jesus. The scene immediately morphs. Please watch this, everybody. The scene immediately morphs into a supernatural encounter. It's like the man isn't even there. It's like the demon-possessed man isn't even there. Because immediately, immediately, the Son of God is talking to evil spirits in this man, totally bypassing the man, And it's immediately a supernatural encounter between the forces of hell and between the Lord Jesus Christ. We we note, watch this, the demons instantly knew him. So so we're we're in a totally supernatural arena now because Jesus has not told the man his name. But they instantly knew him. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran up and kneeled before him and cried out with a loud voice, what have we to do with you, Jesus Son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, don't torment me. These demons knew more about Jesus than most people. Jesus, they said, Jesus. They addressed him by his name, Jesus. Remember when the seven sons of Sceva uh, thought they would cast a devil out of a man and the man full of the devil attacked them, stripped them of their clothes and sent them running into the street. And what did the demons say? Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know. But who are you? See, there, there are certain names known in hell, and one of them is Jesus. If you walk with God and you serve God and you glorify God and you win souls to Christ, I guarantee you, your name is known in hell. I could almost say who, well, I got to be careful here. Check. You got to watch it these days. People record you and they can go out and say, he said a terrible thing in church. I didn't. I'll tell you alone what I was going to say. Ask me after church. All right, now watch this. They, but, but more than knowing his name, they knew who he was. They knew who he was. They knew who he was. They, they, it says, they, they said, Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, I would never advise listening to anything Satan has to say, because how do you know he's lying if he's talking? But right here, the devil is right. 
in what he says. Jesus is the son of the most high God. And I want you to notice, here's this supernatural encounter. They immediately knew they were not talking to a normal man. And Jesus knew that he was not talking just to a man, but to evil spirits. See, the knowledge they had of Jesus, where they could say of him, your name is Jesus and you are the son, the only begotten son of the most high God. You didn't get here on earth by normal means. You are the begotten son of God. The knowledge they had of him reached back into ancient times to an ancient rivalry. Even before the creation of the world, Satan once was the great archangel named Lucifer. Only three archangels we know anything about. Lucifer, Gabriel, Michael, Gabriel is the archangel that brings revelation to people. He's the one that told Mary she was going to have the Christ child. He's the one that gave Daniel his incredible vision for the last days. Gabriel is the messenger. Michael is the warrior. Michael does war, does battle with the forces of hell. But Lucifer, before he was the devil, was the light bearer, the guardian cherub that covers, Ezekiel says, the guardian cherub that covers. He was beautiful. He was powerful, he was stunning, magnificent, and it went to his angelic head. The prophet Isaiah reveals he was judged by God and cast to the earth for seeking to exalt himself to an equal level with God. I will become like the most high, Lucifer said, and he was cast to the earth. Hence, Jesus once told the disciples, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus had witnessed the judgment of Satan long before God made the heavens and the earth. His judgment happened way before God said, let there be light. In eons and eons and eons, an endless time ago is when Lucifer rebelled so that when we first meet Lucifer, he's already judged and he's in the garden of Eden tempting Eve as a serpent. It's already happened to him. He's already a judged being. These demon spirits, and by the way, he persuaded a third of the angels of heaven, the lesser angels, to rebel with him, and they all rebelled. And these demon spirits that used to be angels knew God the Son from before their rebellion against God. The demons also knew about God's prediction of Satan's defeat in Genesis 3.15. They already knew all about it. Because in Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve had fallen, God pronounces judgment on Adam, judgment on Eve, and then judgment on Satan himself. And he told Satan, from now on, you and the woman will be enemies, as will your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Talking about a death blow. And on the cross, when Jesus Christ spilled his blood for you and for me, he dealt the devil a death blow. He dealt the devil a death blow. He removed from him his power of death, hell, and the grave. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? It's been taken away because of Jesus on the cross. So there, there's this ancient rivalry. There are these two worlds meeting that are totally bypassing human flesh. So they knew exactly why Jesus came. And what he intended to do to them and their boss, Satan. Amazing. 
the insight in this story that we're given into the spirit world. The second thing they knew, look at what the demons knew. They knew their destiny. They said this, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now pay attention to the article, the. Have you come to torment us before the time? Not just any time, but a specific time. The time, the appointed time. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Luke's account adds, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Well, what time and what abyss are they talking about? What were the demons saying? Well, the time is at the end of the great tribulation period that is seven years long where the Antichrist does his thing for seven years and the world becomes literally, literally hell on earth. And when that seven years is up and Jesus Christ returns and stops the terrible war of Armageddon and grabs the devil by the scruff of his neck and the Antichrist and the false prophet, that is the time they're talking about. That's the time. Listen to it. Revelation 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the old snake, the devil, and Satan. I love those adjectives. <laughs> the old snake, the dragon, because that's who he is. He's an old snake. He's the dragon. He's the liar, the father of lies, the killer, the murderer, the thief. There's nothing redemptive about him, nothing good. And look what it says the angel does. He throws him into the abyss and then locked and sealed it over him. The abyss literally means in the Greek language the bottomless pit or the immeasurable depth. The, 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 the pit with no bottom, with no end. And the demons knew that it was Jesus who would one day cast them into that place. And so they're saying, don't do it now because I know my destiny. See, I love it. When the devil reminds you of your past, say, ah, but I know about your future. And my Bible tells me your future is grim. I'm redeemed by the blood of the lamb. But your future devil is grim. It's grim. It's grim. So they, they knew that they were dealing with the one who would bring judgment to them. And he knew exactly who they were. And the next thing we see is that with a word, Jesus sets the bound man free. Jesus said to him, to them, to these demons, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He didn't argue with him. He didn't debate with him. He didn't carry on a long conversation with him. Jesus, by his word, the same word that stopped the wind from blowing, the same word that stops the, the waves from rolling. The same word that gave sight to a blind man that called a dead man out of the grave, Lazarus. The same word that he will speak when he says, come up here, church. He will speak and we will go. And with a word, the Bible says, the unclean spirits came out just like that and entered a herd of swine. And the swine ran into the sea and they were all drowned. And that's another message I'll tell you sometime why God allowed that to happen to those pigs. It doesn't mean you can't eat bacon. That was another time. And there's an explanation for it. But with a word, Jesus triumphed 
over Satan's legions with a word. I want everybody here today to catch the power of one word from God. One word from God can change your life. One word from God can totally turn you around. One word from God can set you free. One word from God. The Bible says the townspeople heard about this and they were so terrified of this man before, but they came to Jesus and they saw him who had been possessed with the legion of demons sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were all amazed. They were all amazed. Folks, I want you to know today, and I know most of you know this, but this is going to go out over radio, no telling who's going to hear this, but some of you might need to. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Christianity has nothing to do Follow me with turning over a new leaf, uh, with a, a New Year's resolution, with rehabilitation. I thank God that rehabilitation can set you free of a habit, but rehabilitation is not transformation. If any man be in Christ, he's a brand new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all is become new. All is become new. Christianity is not taking on a bunch of rules and regulations by which you will order your life. No. Listen, Christianity in the raw is when you say, Jesus, I have sinned against you and God, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my heart as Savior and Lord. And when he comes in, he totally changes who you were, who you are, and who you will ever be. He changes you. He changes you. And that's why I say if it's saved, it'll, if you're saved, it'll show it. If you're saved, we'll know it. If you're saved, you won't look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, live like the world. No, when you're saved, it changes who you are. It's a revolutionary transformation. As with everybody that Jesus touched, man with a withered hand, woman with the issue of blood, blind Bartimaeus, the 10 lepers, all of them, all throughout the Bible, there was a before and there was an after. This possessed man went from a half-naked, living in a graveyard, cut and bleeding, wild-eyed, howling maniac, out of control, out of his mind, and almost out of time, to a delivered, clothed, sane, serene, level-headed, peaceful, Jesus-loving, God-praising, redeemed saint who went out and preached, the Bible says, to the Decapolis. That's the Greek word deca, and it means 10. So this man went out and proceeded to preach to 10 different cities what Jesus Christ had done for him. He went from a lunatic to an evangelist overnight. So if you tell me you're born again, I say to you, no, you're not going to be perfect. No, you still got some things you got to work through, that's for sure. But it will show, it will show. If Jesus has touched you, it's going to show because it changes your life from the inside out. What a story. I would love to hear that man preach the gospel one time. What a testimony. Yeah, I used to live in the graveyard. I used to live in the cemetery. Oh, yeah, I slept in the tombs. And 
I cut myself and I was tormented and I cried out and howled at night and shrieked and I could not sleep. And at night I wished it were morning and in the morning I wished it were night. I couldn't live with myself and I couldn't live with anybody else. I'd been cast out. They couldn't control me. I was incorrigible, out of control. But then a man appeared on the shore. And I knew. I knew. Something about him. Before I knew it, I'm kneeling down before him. He's talking to something, and I don't even know what he's talking to. But before I knew it, he commanded whatever was in me to come out. And now I'm sane and peaceful and joyful and purposeful. Yeah. So let's stand together today, can we? Here's what I want you to walk out with. Jesus will cross land and sea to reach one lost and tormented soul. Jesus will find you. If you need, he found me in juvenile home, 16 years old, and I was incorrigible. I had already been labeled incorrigible by counselors. He's incorrigible. But Jesus came into my life, and he made it sane, peaceful, and purposeful. No case is too hard for him. I want you to walk out knowing that. No case is too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Is there anything the Lord cannot do? Everybody say nothing. No case is too hard for him. Because this was the worst case of all. And Jesus set him free. The mark of the devil, mark it, is death and destruction. But the mark of Jesus in your life is peace, a sound mind, and a purposeful life. Every time. Perfect, no. Trouble free, uh uh-uh. Battle free, oh no. But peaceful with God. Purposeful, I know why I'm here. Sane, I'm not doing crazy things anymore. Except it's something crazy for Jesus. And then it ain't crazy. If I'm talking about him or telling somebody about him or whatever. Paul did crazy things for Jesus all the time. So did Peter. All of them did. But I'm talking about I'm no longer doing crazy, irrational, self-destructive things because Jesus came into my life. Amen. Amen. Can we come to the Lord right now and just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for the people you touched And that you're the same today as you were then. Can we just thank the Lord for being a life-changing Messiah? Thank him right now. Thank you, Lord. 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 With your head bowed and your eye closed, maybe today you can say, Jeff... I don't know that I know Jesus. I know about him. I've heard about him. Maybe you were even raised in church. You've heard a million different gospel messages. But listen, if your life hasn't been changed, you're not saved. If your life, if you're still living in sin, and you know it, and there hasn't been a marked change in your life, 
then you got religion, but you didn't get him. Because listen, he will change your life. He will change you. He will change you. He will transform you. He will sanctify you. He will deliver you. He'll transform you. I want to pray with anybody here today and say, you know, Jeff, I may need to be sure that Jesus is in my heart and in my life. Oh, friend, it's the most important question you'll ever answer, ever. That one. Do I know him? It's going to matter now and it's going to matter later in eternity. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I want you to pray it with me. If you need to pray it, I want you to pray it with me right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I repent to you for the sin in my life. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Lord, I look to you as my Savior. Jesus, come into my heart and my life and transform me. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Now, with your heads bowed, if you can say, Jeff, I prayed that with you. Would you lift your hand right where you are? Don't be ashamed of the Lord. He's not ashamed of you. He would lift them high. God bless you back there. I see you. God bless you. And you and here, several, several there, several people. Beautiful, beautiful sight. If your hand is raised, I want you to do something. I want you to slip out and come down right, right here. Just slip and come. Don't worry about what people think. Who cares what people think? They're not going to be there at the judgment. You're going to be there with, with Jesus. So come down right now. Let me pray with you right here. If you raise your hand, come on. Come on. Back in the back. Come on. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Amen. People go, well, why do I need to come down there? In juvenile home, I said the same thing. About 50 kids around me, and I was one of them. He gave me an invitation. I was the only one that got up. Only one. But maybe I was the only one that walked away that night with a changed life. Amen. So several have raised their hand. We have two down here. That's okay. I'm not going to make a, I don't force anybody to do anything. Jesus calls us. Amen. Jesus calls us. So I want you guys to come right up here to me. And I just want to pray with you. I want to say, Jesus, thank you for touching these precious people. And I pray that, Lord, you will change them and rearrange them and minister to them and deliver them. And I thank you for the greatest miracle available to man happening to them right now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. And I'm going to ask if you would just follow Robert right back here into this room. Follow him right there for just a couple of minutes. And we'll see you in just a little bit. Amen. And, and, the, and the rest of you that raise your hand, if you pray sincerely... God heard that prayer. Amen? Amen. How many of you are glad you came to the house of God today? Praise the Lord. How many of you can say, I used to be crazy, but Jesus changed me? I used to be, amen? Amen, amen.